Welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We are your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the scandalous and often, uh, you know, lascivious uh, side of American history. Um, we've got a real one for you guys today. Con artists and free love and all the really good stuff. But first, a little introduction. As always, I'm Becca. And I'm Rebecca. And together we're the, the Rebecca's. Rebecca's. <laughs> it's so weird to try to do that. Uh, Hi, everybody. Hi, listeners. We are just so excited to be heading into the holiday season. We have done some pretty heavy history uh, over the last couple of months. And so we wanted to do something a little bit more scandalous, a little bit more fun. There's definitely going to be some heaviness here, but I think it will be balanced out with some just difficult, fascinating, complicated people. Yes. But with some sauciness. So I'm really excited. Um, before we jump in, though, we just, as always, want to um, thank you guys for listening, supporting the pod. Um, as we head into the end of the year, we have some great episodes coming up. Um, but we're not just doing the podcast. We are out leading tours. This is kind of a great time, I think, to be out and about in D.C. The weather's cooling off, but it's not brutally cold yet. Um the leaves are still changing, which is just so beautiful. Um, we're going to be launching our holiday light tour soon. So if you want to get into the holiday spirit, we'll be out and about seeing all of DC's holiday lights. But um, if you are visiting for the holidays, if you have friends or family in town, we're going to be out Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year. So check out our calendar. Check out our website, dcbyfoot.com. We also have a really exciting um, session coming up. Yes. So um, you guys, I don't know if we've like said explicitly on the pod, I think we've hinted around it, but Becca has written a book and it is amazing. It's 111 places to find women's history in Washington, DC. And she wrote it with our very good friend of the pod, Kate and Calagera. And it's an amazing book. And the photographs are amazing. And we're going to do, I'm going to interview the two of them. So I'm going to be there, the Terry Gross to their like, you know, superstars here. And we're going to do a special episode and it's going to be really great. And they're going to talk all about their favorite things that they did. And I'm going to ask them all sorts of penetrating questions and they are going to talk about their amazing book. So be on the watch lookout for that. We're going to have that posted to this feed at some point in the middle of December. Sometime soon. We'll be recording, um, Uh, early December, December 7th, I believe, but we'll have a link up probably next week or by the time this posts for you to get tickets. If you're a patron, you'll get a free ticket to watch us record live. If you're not a patron, this is a great time. It's the holiday season, become a patron. Um, Or if you're a member of a tour of her own, which is the company that Caitlin founded and uh, which Rebecca and I lead tours for, you'll get information about that as well. So check out the Toho website, atourofhourown.com. Pay attention to um, the tour guide tell-all feed, but you're going to have a chance to watch us record live, which we don't really do a lot. So this is going to be really exciting. So speaking of women's history and wild, interesting, complex women, who are we talking about today and what do we need to warn people about? That was such a good segue. We are going to talk about two. Yeah, I know that was really great. Thank you. Uh, We're going to talk about Victoria Woodhull and Tenny Claflin, who are sisters or were sisters. And um, 
they're fascinating. Before we kind of jump into why they're fascinating, particularly just a content warning, there's going to be some abuse here um, and some discussion about abuse and sexual abuse. And um, there's some con artists, which I guess we don't need a trigger warning for, but we're just going to mention that uh, just so that you're kind of on the same page before we jump in. Um, they're fascinating though. The Claflin sisters. So Victoria is her middle name is California and her last name is Claflin and Tennessee, uh, Celeste Claflin. So apparently they had like a state theme going on with their kids. And I want to jump in. What's so fascinating about them is they are, they, they embody my like maxim, which is history is complicated actually. They're two extremely complicated women. And honestly, like, as I was doing the research for this, I still don't know whether I like them or not. Like that's kind of, I haven't come down in a significant way. They push a lot of boundaries. There's um, a lot that's really admirable and interesting about them, but there's also a lot that's like, they kind of are confidence artists too. Like there's a lot of like interesting Scheming, scheming and scamming, I would say. Um, yes. And this is something we hit on in a lot of our episodes sort of about nobody in history is really typically all good, all bad. People are complex and complicated and you have to sort of view these through these uh, people and events through multiple lenses. But often we don't. I think not just we, but more universally, we don't give women in history that same latitude, that same freedom to be complex and complicated. We really want to. And it's understandable when so few women get talked about in history anyway. So few women get into the history book. So few women get to have that attention. You don't want to knock them down. And that's not what we're intending to do. But I think just in the same way we explore male figures, we want to really give a full picture here of these two women because they are complex and it's not all good, but it is all fascinating. It really is all fascinating. Um, I want to start with their parents briefly. There's not a lot that is known about their mother. Her name is Roxana, and there's not a lot. She there's she's variously described as being um, the daughter of a, a saloon keeper, and she's the her parents weren't married, and there she was illiterate. Uh, there seems to have been some sort of trauma in her childhood, possibly sexually related, uh, that she never really kind of gets over. She suffers from mental health issues later on in her life. So she's kind of an unstable presence uh, in her children's life. She is also perhaps going to suffer mental health issues because of the man that she marries. Uh, Papa Claflin is not a good dude. Uh, they, his name is, um, well, his nickname is Buck. That's what everyone kind of calls him, but she is, um, her mother's name is Roxana and her father's name, uh, was Reuben Buck, Buckman Claflin Esquire. And, um, they are, he's bad just all bad. He's a con artist and a quite literally a snake oil salesman. Like, yeah, we're, you were not just like being descriptive. Like he was selling unlicensed and unregulated medicinal tinterns and whatever you would call them back then. <laughs> he's just, he's so terrible. And he's not like the kind of guy that like is involved in a couple of schemes. Like the scheme is his whole life. Like he's constantly trying to get you over, get over on somebody. He's inventing like faux medical things. And he's just, he's the kind of guy today that would be like the person who would try to slip and fall in your house or your restaurant so that he could sue you 
for insurance pay up in insurance payout. Like that's the kind of guy this guy is. He abandons his family at least once. He's going to use his children in his schemes of which there are 10 kids, seven of which live. And Victoria seems to, she's the seventh of the 10 and Tenny is the 10th. And Victoria seems to have had no, she's very smart from a young age. That's very apparent. She also doesn't really, she's not shy at all. Like she has no problem public speaking and is the kind of kid on the playground that will tell you what's what. And um, her, she seems to have had the gift of uh, spiritualism early on in life. Her mother seems to have been involved with that. Uh, She's a devotee of the uh, Franz Mesmer, who we talked about last month in our spiritualism episode. And Victoria and Tenny are going to, basically their father markets them as an alternative to the Fox sisters. So the Fox sisters, we've talked about them briefly in our uh, spiritualism episode. They are a couple sisters who are going to basically be mediums. And Buck Claflin figures, well, if these girls can do it, my girls can do it. And so he's gonna essentially like parade them around and market them as spiritualists, spiritual guides. And he's reportedly gonna starve them to make them seem younger and more ethereal. He beats them sort of randomly. And uh, there is a hint of sexual abuse by their dad. That is not confirmed, Uh, but he's a terrible dad and very, very, very terrible. And so it is not especially surprising to me that Victoria wants out of this. Yeah, like um, this is, you know, that there's no real education for them. There's no real opportunities. He, <laughs> I mean, they have to like leave town because he heavily insures and then burns down the family's gristmill. So like, and then they basically get run out of town um, when he tries to get compensated for this thing that he's burned down himself. So you can imagine this is not a very stable, supportive, loving childhood experience she's not getting a lot out of this and so it does not surprise me that she is eager to get out and and strike out on her own but of course for a woman in this era there is no alone right this is you know pre-civil war um she's only going to have a few opportunities to get out and one of them is going to be through a man right hitching your wagon to a man that's not your father and woman is a stretch Right. She's, um, I'm sorry. She's a, truly a child still at this point. Yes. When she's 14, she gets treated for a chronic illness, which probably has something to do with the fact that her father isn't feeding her properly. Uh, and the doctor that treats her is 28-year-old Canning Woodhall. So she's 14 and he's 28, which is not good. And he... <laughs> He's gonna, he says that he is uh, the nephew of the mayor of New York, whose last name is Woodhall. So it's not like he's just plucking this out of nowhere. So he tells everybody he's the mayor, the nephew of the mayor of New York. <laughs> he's a doctor and, you know, very much like a man with prospects. And Victoria is basically seems to strong harm him onto a date and then essentially informs him that she's going to marry him. Like that's on their very first date. And she's all of 14. And they get married like two months after her 15th birthday. And as you probably can predict, the marriage is terrible. She makes a terrible choice because she has only terrible choices. Like she's basically going to substitute 
ownership by one man for another. Like she's no longer owned by her father. She's now owned by her husband. Um, Canning Woodhull makes a spectacularly terrible husband. He lies about his connection to the mayor of New York, which you could probably guess. Uh, he possibly lied about being a doctor. That's the, you know, records are pretty murky back then. And he also was an alcoholic and a philanderer. So that's good. She has two children in very rapid succession. Her first, their, their son Byron is born like a year after their marriage. She is all of 16. And Byron is going to be born intellectually disabled. And so she will blame that on her husband's alcoholism and his philandering. That doesn't hold up to me from what I know about being medical, uh, my medical knowledge, but that she's going to blame her husband for that. She really just substitutes one uh, con man and abuser for another. He's a very terrible husband and um, he, she's eventually going to divorce him after about 10 years of marriage. Now, a word about divorce. They get divorced in 1865. She is about 25 years old and divorce is not a thing that really happens back then at all like you get married you're married for life and she is uh the fact that she divorces him is i think ultimately what's going to propel her in like this allows her to have the life that she gets because she like this isn't the most auspicious start for a life like she has two children before she's 20 and she's saddled with an alcoholic husband uh, so this is not like this is not particularly auspicious here, but I feel like this divorce is what's going to propel, like allow her to have this whole other life that she sort of walks into. And you're I feel like have, I think that, different opinions about like, or you're going to have different ideas about a role that women, women have and what autonomy women mm -hmm. should and shouldn't have and what legal rights they shouldn't have. If you've gone through what she went through at the age that she went through it, particularly. Yes. Um, you know, women have few options to escape this uh, love, even a loveless marriage. They don't have, um, the ability to get their husband's paychecks if their husband are earning uh, are earning money they don't have the there's no like child support or anything of that nature and so she is in her early 20s with two little kids and an alcoholic husband and she decides this is not what she wants and it is such a strong statement I feel like about who she is and what she wants to become that she does not allow this to drag her down. She does not allow this to stop her. And she will remain close to him for the rest of his life. Like they are, it's not like she cuts him off. Like she will care for him later on in life when he's ill. Uh, but she decides that this is not the marriage she wants to be in and completely like revolutionarily for the era. She's like, yeah, I'm out. I'm bouncing. Um, she's going to marry a second guy, sort of. So the second marriage, his name is Colonel James Blood. He had served in the Civil War, uh, the United States Army in Missouri. He was had an elected position in St. Louis. He was going places, prospects, you know? He's stable. A little bit more reliable than um, her sure, first husband, a sure. little bit yep. more, like you said, established. Um, yep. You could see the appeal. Yep, oh, absolutely. And he is also recently separated from his first wife. And it is honestly not clear 
all of these divorces and remarriages if they're actually, you know, super legal. Like she legally divorces Woodhull. That is true. But it's not 100% clear whether her and Blood were actually like legally married. But whatever, we'll move past it. She is going to be an advocate of free love, which you can completely see. She had a terrible first marriage. She does not really wish to be chained to another husband in a way that she cannot escape. Um, she is going, she wants women should have the choice to leave these bad marriages. She's also like, thinks that women should have the right whether they consent to sex or not. And she's essentially going to invent the concept of marital rape. Like, obviously that had existed. That was the thing that happened, but there was no name for it. And she's going to put a name to it and say that, no, no, no. Like women have the right to say whether they want to have sex or not which is a huge, a big deal. Women are not seen as like autonomous individuals when they get married. They're like legal personhood is basically completely subsumed by their husband. And so she's going to say, no, 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 we have the right to do what we want to do, which I just think is so great. Um, she is, says that, you know, we don't have to, um, stay buried to this person if it's not working out. We don't have to be like completely linked to them. We deserve to have our own identity and legal personhood, which makes her obviously branded a radical. Naturally. Um, I do. I think it's so impressive that she is giving voice and a name to something that existed, clearly existed and happened, but she's willing to say it doesn't have to be this way and it shouldn't be this way and it actually doesn't make sense. Um, and that we have a right of sort of sexual determination. We can decide at any point, regardless of marital status, whether we consent to sex or not, which I think is you know, well within the sort of natural natural and inalienable rights we believe that individuals have. Uh, I do think it's interesting too, at the same time that she sort of meets the colonel and is like going to have this second marriage with this like slightly more stable guy, but also while starting to advocate for free love, she is kind of operating as a con artist though at the exact same moment. She is at this point in her life post-Civil War passing herself off as a spiritualist physician so she's sort of claiming to have spiritual healing qualities and that she can sort of lay hands upon you and heal you of your ills, which is not really how any of that works. No, no. Again, I wouldn't take medical advice from me and Becca either, but like, I, I, it is not my understanding that that's how things work. Um, she, she's, that's what's so fascinating about her. Like she really does seem to genuinely believe a lot of these reforms that she's advocating, but at the same time, she's very much like a con artist and kind of bilking people out of money. And I guess that's what she knows, you know, that's what she grew up with. It's what she knows. Again, women's options, especially a divorced woman, right? What opportunities do you have economically? Very limited. So she does the only thing she knows. I think it's a testament to her intelligence that she manages to find the semi-sophisticated sort of like little niches to fit herself into. Um, as a con artist, you know, she's not just selling, you know, passing off some sort of bum invention or, you know, whatever. She's She's marketing herself as this, you know, cutting edge progressive spiritualist physician but it is still a, a scam it's a it's a con it's it's you know nonsense but in some ways you can understand where it's coming from but to me it's just again that sort of complexity of here she is making really important i think arguments about 
women and their rights, but also equally comfortable just like scamming people out of their money to by pretending to be this sort of spiritual healer. I agree. And it really, at the time, very much blunts her message. I think that she's, you know, she's has this very much an active, uh, she's an activist and she believes in these things, but at the same time, like people are able to point to her, like basically con artists, uh, career and say, well, we don't need to take her seriously and we don't need to credit her ideas because clearly she's, you know, full of it in every way. And so it really like, it doesn't help her message and her advocacy in any real way. Um, about, so let's back up a minute and talk about, I want to talk about Tenny quickly. So Tenny, um, by the way, they're named Victoria's name for Queen Victoria. And Tenny is named Tennessee because apparently her parents had a fascination with uh, then Congressman, future President James K. Polk, who was from Tennessee. Yeah, you know, that guy you'd definitely be obsessed with, James Polk. Yeah. James Polk. <laughs> anyway, Tennessee's the younger one, and she's like eight or nine. They're not real clear. There's no one's 100% clear when Tenny was born. So there's like a big question mark. She's like eight or nine, it seems like, when Victoria gets married. And it leaves her behind, essentially. And ten so Tennessee is going to be much more factor into her father's schemes for a lot longer. She he is going to, she's advertised as a fortune teller and a faith healer. And she's uh, she's got a, apparently a magic elixir that they're going to sell for a while. She is... Um, apparently they should sell, they sell this um miss tennessee's magneto elixir which is essentially worthless for like two dollars all over the midwest she said says that she can cure diseases and so they're gonna basically like her father brings her kind of around the midwest and advertises her healing abilities he's gonna advertise himself as the quote king of cancer and um they're gonna it, it doesn't go great. At one point, they are chased out of a particular town. Their hotel room is raided. Uh, they're going to burn patient's skin with whatever concoctions they're trying to cure them with. Uh, they're charged with fraud and quackery, which I would like to be charged with quackery. That is an quackery. excellent quackery. Um, she's blamed for the death of a patient. Like, this is serious stuff. And so they're going to have to, like, hustle out of town because they've once marketed, again right again because they've marketed this like fake cancer cure and it has actually killed somebody at some point after the civil war victoria is in the second marriage which appears to be pretty happy and the father buck and tennessee are the three of them are going to get involved in a scheme that moves them to new york city and they are going to, one of the people that they're going to immediately make contact with is Cornelius Vanderbilt. And this is where the story takes a turn that if it wasn't actual fact, you'd think it was completely made up. So Cornelius Vanderbilt is like the Vanderbilt. Like he's like the guy. He's called the Commodore. He's made the family fortune. He is like, this is the Vanderbilt family. He's the, by this time he's in his sixties. He's not, you know, young any longer. His first wife has died and he has never trusted like traditional medicine. And so he's going to be the kind of guy that's really open to this sort of faith healing and spiritualism. And Buck Claflin like swoops right in and somehow makes contact with this guy and says, hey, my one daughter is like a spiritualist my other daughter is like a faith healer 
and yeah so victoria because she's like she's respectably married she's the spiritualist and tennessee is the healer and this whole laying on of hands apparently they laid on some hands <laughs> that is that is a euphemism um they start to spend a lot of time together they get God, very friendly they get very friendly tennessee and the commodore get very friendly and rumors of an affair like you can't confirm these things obviously but like one of their one of the commodore servants says that he like comes into the commodore's bedroom and tennessee is like literally naked in his bed and i don't really like there's not much more confirmation than you can get than that i feel like um and it is rumored that he proposes to her and so he very much is going to fall under her like spell. And at this point, Tenny is like in her mid twenties and the Commodore is in his sixties. And getting no real medical care. So like how long could he live considering right. he doesn't trust real doctors? Right. Considering he doesn't trust real doctors and the Commodore is a whole thing. Like he's a fascinating guy all on his own. And he is, um, yeah, he's there's like I read a bunch of different and very conflicting reports of like how involved he was with the Claflins, particularly with Tennessee. Most everybody kind of agrees that there was some romantic something going on between him and Tenny. Like that almost seems impossible to refute. Yeah. Whether or not he planned to marry her is a very much an open question. Yeah. Well, and you have to wonder, given everything she's been through in life. I find it hard to believe she'd turn down a marriage offer from him because certainly that would have meant, even though he has children that are going to get part of his fortune. And at this point, you know, children, grandchildren, nephews, nieces, all of that. But like, she probably could have gotten herself a pretty good cut. So I find it hard to believe she would have turned down a legitimate marriage proposal. I agree. Um, just at thinking about what we know about her and the way she was raised and her father's influence that they would have walked away from Vanderbilt money. Yeah. I Yeah. Which I mean, they're already kind of funneling into various uh, endeavors. Right. And the Vanderbilt's like, he will much, he doesn't marry Tenny Claflin. He does marry a much younger woman though. Like his second wife is quite a bit younger than he is. Um, and he kind of remains a benefactor to the Claflin sisters for a while. It is not clear how long his affair with Tenny lasts, but he like, they remain in each other's orbit for quite some time. And it is remarkable to me that these two women come from out of nowhere, literal poverty, and they go to New York and suddenly they're hanging out with like the, the richest man probably in America at the yeah. time. Like, can you imagine like just walking over to the richest man in the world's house and just hanging out with him for an afternoon? No, that's like literally unimaginable how they must have had something. There must be something about them. And certainly, I mean, you can look at images and these were lovely women, yes. but there had to have been, I think, just the charisma, the charm, you know, maybe it is that little con artist DNA, but they had to have had some real something going on besides just good looks to really catch and keep the attention of somebody so far out of their class, so far out of their socioeconomic circle, you know, and because he is going to be there. I mean, he's going to, like you say, even though he remarries another young woman, he remains sort of connected to Tenny and to this family. It's really. And once you, once you can say you're in the Vanderbilt circle, it opens a lot more doors. 
oh yeah, absolutely. And he's got like a bunch of kids and grandkids that are around. Like the Vanderbilt family is by this time pretty established. Like that opens a lot of doors. He's a philanthropist and has donated money to whatever it is you donate money to. Uh, and they benefit from this association a lot more than he does. Um, in late 19, 1869, the two sisters, Victoria and Tennessee, are going to open up a um, brokerage firm. And this is the part of the story that's just so really interesting to me. They are the first women to open up a brokerage firm, a Wall Street brokerage firm. It is just so fascinating. They can't trade on the floor of like, they can't actually go and trade on the floor there because they're women. In fact, uh, they don't get a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. No woman achieves a seat on the New York Stock Exchange until 1967, which is disgusting to me. But anyway, back to the, back to the two of them. They are going to open up this, uh, they call it Woodhull Claflin and Company. They charge $25 for a consultation, which was not an insignificant amount of money. They make it very known that they are backed by the Commodore, by Cornelius Vanderbilt. And he does not gainsay this. Like he makes no, like, it would have been very easy for him to be like, I don't know who these women are. Like, no, he apparently supports this. And they're going to, um, they're dubbed the bewitching brokers. Because of their spiritualist background. Because of their spiritualist background. And their good looks. Oh yes, and their good looks. Um, There are, and they wanna cater to women, like female investors, which obviously is gonna cause a stir. Like all of this causes a stir. First of all, they're women with a brokerage firm, which has never been done before. And second of all, they have this idea that women have money to invest and should invest and should play like a role in financial affairs in the stock market. Um, They get uh, hundreds of curious visitors. Yeah. I have to imagine that nine out of 10 people who show up are just like gawkers, right? They just want to see it. They want to see if it's real. It's like, you know, too crazy for the average person to comprehend. And I, like, and they don't care. They're excited about the novelty. If people will pay $25, if people want to spend 25 bucks just to gawk at the novelty, sure, they'll take their money. Like, that sounds good. And um, they, people wonder, you know, are there enough women investors to make this a success? And they're going to hit on, unsurprisingly, a an untapped source of investment capital. Like, all kinds of women, society-wise, teachers, um, homeowners, um, actresses, prostitutes. Widows who have widows. some financial um, freedoms that uh, certainly married women do not. Yes. And so they are going to want to invest. And if you're you are going to invest in those days you want, I would imagine you want to invest with someone who takes you seriously, who's not going to pat you on the head, like a, probably a male firm would and say, Hey honey, Oh, aren't you cute? Go home. Like the, you want to invest with women who are going to take you and your concerns seriously, who are going to give you good advice. And so I can see this being an immediate success, which is it, which it is. They actually do pretty well. And part of it is the again they have the backing of the commodore who's made a lot of money and so he clearly knows something about making more money and so they kind of like get stock tips from him which you know can't couldn't have hurt 
they are uh, there. It's an immediate triumph, like almost like instantaneously. That's just pretty cool. They're going to rent an expensive apartment. They're, they start a radical newspaper called Woodhill and Claflin's Weekly. And they're going to advocate for free love and, you know, all that stuff uh, in their newspaper. And um, this is very fringe stuff. It's very fringe. It's very radical. They will become the first paper in America to print the Communist Manifesto. So you can imagine what the more established media and the more established, overwhelmingly sort of male types are saying about these women. Look at them. They're advocating free love. They're giving or encouraging financial freedom among women. They're reproducing communist manifesto documents. Like this makes them dangerous, scary, rabble rousing women. Oh yeah. They're openly called prostitutes. I mean, clearly like they're advocating for women must, you know, women could enjoy sex and choose who they, their partners and have sex outside of marriage. And oh my God, this is terrible. Like, can you imagine, I can imagine literal pearl clutching going on all up and down Manhattan. This is the Gilded Age. This is an era where, you know, women are allowed very little freedoms. Like, if if you ever read a romance novel in this era, there's the, everybody's all worried about being ruined all the time, which is ridiculous. And I hate that phrase so much, but um, they are, this is, they're flying in the face of literally every moray that happens to exist anywhere ever. And then they're going to get into politics. Because why not? At this point, you know, you're already being called essentially these commies. They're already being told that they're, they're the downfall of America. Why not? Why not? You know, you have financial power. Why not grab some political power? And Tennessee is actually the first one to run for office. Uh, we'll get to Victoria in a second. She's the much more famous person who runs for office. But Tennessee in 1871 is going to announce her candidacy for New York's eighth, eighth congressional district. Like she wants to run for Congress. And at the time, like women couldn't vote, obviously, but there's nothing in the constitution that says that they can't serve. Right. So this seems to be a big, a nice loophole. Now they've already tried to vote and are rebuffed because women can't vote, but she's going to, the eighth congressional district at that time was largely German. And so she's going to announce her candidacy with like delivers her speech in German, which I just love. Like this, another con. It's so great. Um, and she's but like, good run, for her. Does, when did she have time to learn German? Right. Why not? <laughs> I love it so much. She is, she doesn't win. Not surprisingly, I think, to anybody. Um, And then her sister is going to decide to run uh, for president, which I love. Uh, She is nominated for president by the newly formed Equal Rights Party on May 10th, 1872 in New York City. She had announced her intention to run about a year earlier. She's going to speak about how the government is only the province of men and that that's bad. Uh, Her nomination is ratified at the convention. She's the first woman candidate for president. And she is also going to the party, the Equal Rights Party, which I think is basically just mostly her. Um, She is going to nominate Frederick Douglass as her vice president. 
which I just have to note here that Frederick Douglass has no idea that this is happening yeah. Yeah. and he will not acknowledge this in any way. He will not accept this nomination. He will not speak to it. But I have to kind of almost like tip of the hat to be like, yeah, 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 I'm running. And this super famous man right. who we all beloved, he's my vice president. Right. And he's like, who, what now? No, he's actually going to, he's, uh, uh, supports publicly Ulysses S. Grant, who eventually does win, uh, the, the presidency, but he, Frederick Douglass doesn't acknowledge this. He wants no part of this, which I just, the, the chutzpah of her, like saying that he's, she's going to run with Frederick Douglass is just, it's amazing to me. Um, now here's the thing though. Um, they are the, this all, they, she wasn't really going to win anyway. I mean, that's really kind of, no one is surprised. And even she that. knows that it's, it's even not about that. winning, right? No, it's not, but, but she is going to, um, devote right before the election. She has been, has information about a man named Henry Ward Beecher, who's a reverend, She's been sitting on this information about the adulterous affair that he is engaging in with a member of his congregation. She's going to sit on this information and then publish it the week before the election. So she's been holding this information like in her back pocket. And the Beechers, um, the most famous Beecher is Henry Ward Beecher. We've talked about him in the Pearl episode. His sister, Harriet Beecher Stowe is also pretty famous. They are all, they're in Connecticut. They are, um, they were abolitionists before the war. The Harriet Beecher Stowe, by the way, did not think women should have the right to vote, which makes me sad. But anyway, they have been, the Beechers have been talking about the Claflins and their sort of wicked ways for a long, long time. So they've been smearing Victoria and Tenney in the press for ages and ages. And now Victoria has information is going to get back at them. And so she's going to time this to right before the election. And she's going to have this whole issue of the newspaper that's going to ex expose this affair that Henry Ward Beecher has been having. He's been having this affair with uh, a, uh, um, a congregant. Uh, and uh, this is a big deal. He has lectured against free love. He has talked about how Victoria Woodhull is basically no better than a prostitute. And so now she is going to publish this article basically exposing him as a hypocrite. And Victoria Woodhull has spoken to the wronged husband. Like she has his, like she's interviewed him. And he is very happy to talk, by the way, yeah, no about kidding. what his wife is up to. Like that his wife has been pregnant by a man that's not him. Like he is very happy to talk about all this. And there is, this causes like a meltdown of a scandal. Like as you could probably imagine. Victoria Woodhull is charged with being the lover of the, the wronged husband. This is going to get her into trouble with obscenity laws. Um, they, because they're publishing this in a newspaper, they are going to be, um, uh, U.S. Marshals are going to arrest her and her sister and her husband on charges of publishing an obscene newspaper because of the content of the issue. So let's not focus on the hypocrisy that she's exposing in the newspaper. We'd rather focus on the fact that she's talking about things that women shouldn't talk about. Uh, and she's using, um, she's 
the violating obscenity laws to do it. She is arrested by a man named Anthony Comstock, who's trying to make his name. He's like the self-appointed moral defender of the nation. He's trying to establish himself. And he in fact does establish himself uh, as this sort of, you know, government uh, scold basically like he, these, you know, we can't talk about obscenity. We can't talk about free love. And he's going to go on to a career basically enforcing these obscenity laws all over the United States and particularly in New York. Uh, yeah, we could really do a whole episode on Comstock because uh, it sort of becomes this f- code word for um, kind of uh, like, you know, banning books and uh, censorship and just really sort of cracking down on the moral sort of code of the United States. Uh, so it does not surprise me that he is like particularly drawn to like coming against these women. Right. Right. They embody and no everything that gives him the vapors. Oh my gosh, yes. And it just is so interesting to me that like they're exposing this very real hypocrisy by an upstanding member of the community. Like Henry Ward Beecher is pretty famous. He has been for a while. His family is famous. And he's engaged in this really hypocritical affair that they have exposed. And rather than focus on that, Comstock is focusing on the obscenity laws that they're violating by talking about this in their newspaper. And so they're going to get arrested on these very like trumped up charges and um, they go through a, they're acquitted in a trial six months later, but on a technicality, uh, the arrest is going to prevent Woodhull from attempting to vote in the 1872 election, which she probably would have gotten arrested for that too. So that's all good times. Uh, then the after the publication of the scandal, the wronged husband, whose name is Theodore Tilton, is going to sue Henry Beecher for alienation of affection. And this is going to be a massive trial, too, that they kind of get dragged into. So it's like scandal on scandal on scandal. And they're involved in this for quite some time. And um, Victoria Woodhull is going to try to run for president in uh, again, doesn't end up sort of going anywhere. Uh, But after all of these scandals, she's going to decide to divorce her second husband, Colonel Blood. She says, you know what? I'm out. Which I just have to say, I love that he sort of has one response to this he makes one public statement which is simply just that the grandest woman in the world went back on me that's it that's all he can say um it's sort of melancholy you feel like perhaps that he really thought she was going to be the one or they'd figure it out um but that's what he says he says the grandest woman in the world went back on me which is lovely, I think. That's a nice sentiment, I guess, in a weird way. In a weird way. <laughs> in a weird way. She's, and the one of the things about their marriage, and this is another thing that's going to come out in this big, important, the two big trials, is that she's married to her second husband, but also her first husband is living with them. Because he's at this point, the alcoholism and the philandering have caught up with him in a big way. He's not in great health um, and he can't care for himself, but they have two children together. And so she's going to answer these charges of like, hey, you're like living with two, you're both of your husbands at the same time. And she's like, I can help him out. He's the father of my children. Why wouldn't I want them to be around him? And why wouldn't I want to help him? Uh, which I think is really kind of progressive and um, sort of upstanding of Victoria Woodhull. 
And she leaves her second husband. And about a year later, Cornelius Vanderbilt dies. Now their brokerage firm has long since dissolved. It doesn't survive the financial panic in 1873, but they've kind of remained close to the Vanderbilt family. And the Vanderbilt heirs are immediately going to start to squabble with each other about the Commodore's will. And the oldest son obviously has a vested interest since he has inherited everything. He has a vested interest in the will maintaining, uh, maintaining the will, right? Like it, benefits him. And so he is worried that the opposition will contact Tenny Claflin and ask her to testify to the Commodore's mental state in order to discredit the will. The will. And so he's going to pay off both Victoria and her sister, give him a lot of money and say, bye, please leave. Thank you. And by a lot of money, they each receive $1,000 in 1877. So today, maybe about 25000 each which uh, probably a little bit more, honestly, um, accounting for sort of 2021 money. But that's not nothing, right? Um, That's a pretty good chunk of change. It's certainly enough to start over somewhere else. Sure. And that's what they do. They both start over in different places, in in the UK mostly. Um, Victoria is going to go on a public lecture circuit tour. She like tours around and um, talks about the human body. She talks about free love. She talks about sort of, she's an early advocate of birth control and sort of planned planning your pregnancies and all kinds of things. And she will go on a lecture circuit. And while she's there at one of her first lectures, a banker named John Bidolf Martin shows up and basically falls head over heels for her and spends the next like five years trying to persuade her to marry him. And eventually he is successful. She just had so, to have had something. This woman had some sex appeal. I am both of them must have like just reading between the lines of like, not only like all these men who kind of fall over themselves for these women, but also like the fact that they make like Anthony Comstock so upset, like they had something, there's something in their manner. Um, she, so Tennessee is also going to, um, go to London and um, she's going to get married for the first and only time uh, herself. Uh, She is going to marry a baron. So she gets a title. Isn't that lovely? Uh, She marries Francis Cook, chairman of Cook and Son Drapers, also the Viscount of Montserrat on the Portuguese Riviera. Yeah. And within months of their marriage. shabby. Right. Within months of their marriage, Queen Victoria creates a baronetcy for her husband. So she's uh, now Lady Cook and the Viscountess of Montserrat. Lady Tenny. Lady Tenny, which I love so much. I just love it. Um, She never abandons her radical viewpoints, but sort of lives out of the public eye. Uh, Her sister is going to start a school, which seems to have been not particularly accredited. You know, what are you going to do? But she moves to this little teeny town with her two kids and basically becomes the sort of rich benefactress of the town and like hands out candy at Christmas and pays for schools for the little kids and all that stuff. Um, So she is going to die in this teeny little town in um, the UK in her 80s, which is kind of remarkable to me. yeah, 80, at the age of 88. Uh, so that's Victoria and uh, her sister. Now, Victoria is often said to be the first woman to run for president. Yeah. 
<laughs> Which I call shenanigans on. Yeah. First We've, of all, not because she's a woman. No, no. Um, but, you know, first of all, we do have a constitution um, and we do technically have a, an age to which one must be to run. Yes. And she wasn't that age. Yeah. So she's only 34 when she runs for president and you have to be 35 on the day you're sworn in, which she was, would not have been. Not that, again, she was going to get any uh, votes really, uh, but um, she wouldn't have been eligible constitutionally. So there's yeah. this big debate. Is she the first woman to run for president or is it Belva Lockwood who runs about 15 years after uh, Victoria Woodhull, uh, who definitely was of the right age, also does not win. Yeah, my instinct is to sort of feel that Belva is the first real legitimate female candidate for president. But I think yeah. that Victoria Woodhull is certainly worth knowing uh, for many reasons, but for this reason as well, for sort of throwing her hat in the ring, for inspiring other women to do so, um, and really for kind of bucking up against the suffrage movement, which felt that women pursuing office was a detriment to the movement. Um, yes. Particularly in this era, suffragists have a very specific sort of mode of operating, which is we write letters and we do petitions, and uh, we're really going to figure out how to do this the right way. And we don't want you doing anything to upset the delegate, like male mm -hmm. ego, because we're going to do this through this particular system. So she um, and her sister really find themselves at odds with a lot of female suffragists, because they're not just asking to vote, they're asking to hold office. And that's too radical, right? It's too much. Yeah. Not to mention the free love, the spiritualism, just the whole alternative lifestyle choices often, right? These are women that are, are attracting the wrong kind of attention to the movement is how many suffragists feel. So yes. I do find them sort of fascinating in that regard too, that they're kind of bucking up against a lot of the notable female leaders of the moment. I agree. And they don't make friends with a lot of these people. Like they're very much. Like, they don't make a lot of friends in general, honestly. They don't make a lot of friends in general. That's fair. Uh, they are way too radical for way too many people, I think. And they kind of march to the beat of their own drummer, uh, which is kind of amazing. And I just love that they don't like, they're going to do what they want to do. And that's kind of how that's going to be. And it really is amazing to me. And it's just so interesting how the women's movement is sort of shoved forward uh, by some of these sort of very radical women who have these radical ideas. And I feel like the way that we talk about the uh, Victoria and Tenny Claflin, there's so much of it is gendered. Like there's so much that like, oh, if it was a man who was, you know, having affairs with women, like it wouldn't be a big deal. But because it's, you know, a couple women, it's not really okay. So I feel like there's a lot of gendered um, language in how we discuss them. Absolutely. And I think they are also such a product of what was a very difficult, broken childhood. Mm -hmm. um, they are born into a very unstable home situation. They are exploited in many ways um, mm -hmm. by their father's cons. They are put into what were, were certainly abusive and dangerous situations. Um, so it's not surprising to me that e into adulthood, right, they don't always, I think, have, they're not attuned perhaps to how to do things in a productive manner. Sure. Yeah. Um, and how to uh, perhaps uh, cultivate healthy, normal relationships with those around them. 
Right. And it just is interesting to me, like I have this question in history, not just about the two of them, but in general, like how many women throughout history have suffered childhood trauma that like informs how they operate for the rest of their lives and how like that they can't recover from or that they're then later deemed hysterical or crazy or whatever it is, like how much of that sort of childhood trauma is sort of much more routine and become informs the way that we look at women in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I did want to share as we wrap up the episode, though, a quote from Victoria Woodhull's sort of declaration of intention speech. Um, This is sort of something she writes and has published in the New York Herald to sort of uh, sort of announce her attention to run for president. And I think it sums up kind of a good kind of summation of where Victoria and Tenney fall in American history and particularly kind of where they fall in this arc of women, women's roles in the 19th century. Uh, she writes, I am quite well aware that in assuming this position, I shall evoke more ridicule than enthusiasm at the outset. But this is an epoch of sudden changes and startling surprises. What may appear absurd today will assume a serious aspect tomorrow. And I I think it. it really speaks to the fact that these women are also kind of born right on this cusp or right in this sort of like moment where so much is changing in the United States. And it's fascinating to imagine what would have happened if they'd been born 20 years later uh, and where that would have put them and aligned them. Um, Cause yes. you know, they, they are in some ways women ahead of their time too. Very much ahead of their time. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Oof, but complicated, complicated. We, we, there's probably a few other elements of Victoria that we could touch on. There's been newer scholarship on her in the last few years, really looking at some of the complexities in her issues when it comes to things like reproductive um, justice and, and rights uh, and some of her complicated views, I think, on raising a child with disabilities. So um, I don't know that I'm necessarily the, the best person to speak on that, but I do uh, sort of want to acknowledge that there are historians in the last few years really digging in and trying to look at a more rich, full picture of Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's complicated, particularly with figures like Victoria and Tennessee, because so much about them is through the press, which is certainly mm-hmm. biased. Sure. As you were sort of saying how much of it is so gendered, but also because these women are in many ways con artists, it's hard to even trust the own pri- the primary documents right these are women right. constantly selling themselves and selling any given point of view for gain at that moment mm-hmm. so it's hard to root out sort of what's sincere and what's real yeah yep i agree i agree i think there's a, a large element of that too so yeah oh, this was fun this was victoria <laughs> woodhall and tenny claflin you guys this is um again history's complicated people are people and um I, God, we got a chance to talk about these two are, they interest me. I don't know if I like them. Again, we've talked about them a bunch and I still don't know if I like them. I, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's complex. I think I find myself having a slight bit of like, I don't know if it's a little bit more fascination this time around with Tennessee and Tenny mm-hmm. being sort of the baby child. And in some ways, you know, Victoria kind of abandons her when she goes off into this kind of crazy yeah. child bride marriage and Tenny kind of gets the short end of the stick because uh, she's left with their no good Nick father um right. so I sort of this time around as we were talking about it I'm like man I just really would like to be in Tennessee's head a little bit 
Yes. Um, th yep. this, this made for a great topic, Rebecca. Thank you for pitching it. Yay. So we'll come back in December, friends. Yeah. What are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing in December? We're going to do the Willard Hotel. Yes. And we, Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And Pearl Harbor. So we have two very different topics. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, sort of one of the defining moments of the 20th century, Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we'll do a little bit of holiday frivolity um, and some fun <laughs> stories. There'll be spies. There'll be presidents. Uh, some of our favorite wild ladies will make an appearance, but we're going to talk about the history of the Willard Hotel, which is one of my favorite places in D.C. in the holiday yes. season. Uh, and then we're going to have our special live interview with Caitlin uh, to talk yes. about our book, our, our, our special um, partnership with uh, Tour of Our Own. So we have a lot of good stuff happening before the end of the year. Yes. And we'll have bonus content for our patrons. We're going to do an episode this month about uh, women and prohibition. Next month, we're going to do a little spy episode. It's going to be good. We're going to, we got some good stuff. So thank you guys for coming along on our journey and we will be back at you next time. Bye guys.